Hi, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today, our guest is Mike Redzicki, an economist and expert in system dynamics and former colleague of Jay Forrester. System dynamics is an important tool for modeling complex organizations and systems, particularly in economics, markets, and management. Let's begin. Mike, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity. I'm glad to have you here today. Thank you very much for inviting me, George. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So where are you calling in from today? Uh, my home in Sterling, Massachusetts, about the center of the state. Right. And you, uh, you work at uh, WPI, which is uh, um, just a few miles away from there and uh, a few more miles from Boston, right? Yeah, uh, I'm a, I live about 15 miles from Worcester Polytech, and uh, we're, we're both about 40 miles from Boston. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so tell me, what's the weather like today? It's beautiful, actually. Probably 70, not a cloud in the sky. So, Excellent, uh, I took, yeah. I took the uh, the plow off of my um, side-by-side. I, I was telling my wife, I hope I, hope I didn't jinx us, but uh, I think we're we're good. Yeah, yeah. It hopefully it won't go into summer too fast. I know that's happened sometime. Lived, I lived in the Boston area for a lot, long, lot of years. So, um, well, thanks for, again. Thanks for joining me. I wanted to start just by asking you about your 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 background and you know kind of what drew you into the field and sort of where you uh, where you ended up focusing once you once you got started. Sure. Well. Uh... I uh, was a high school student in the 1970s, and I was uh, too young, thankfully, to have to worry about going to Vietnam. So that was off the table by the time I turned 18. And so the big thing in the news every day was the economy, if you remember, with the OPEC oil embargoes, inflation, whip inflation now and all that. And my father one day as a, as a high school student said uh, after dinner, he laid the Wall Street Journal down and he said, read the front page and the editorial page tell me one thing. And I was like, what? I did it. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so next day, do it again. I did it. Pretty soon, he didn't have to uh, make me do it. I was reading the Wall Street Journal. And you were caught. It was all yeah. econ yeah. stuff. And I got quite interested in um, economics and uh, more specifically central banking. So I thought I was going to be a central banker someday. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an early start that your father gave you. So um, yeah. so you ended up uh, getting into the field known as system dynamics. So how did mm -hmm. that happen? So I, so I was an undergraduate economics major, and I thought I'm pretty good at this, but to be a central banker or an economist at a central bank, I got to get a PhD. So uh, I went and did that. And as a doctoral student, one day I was... Um, just perusing the library uh, stacks, stretching my legs. And I came across a book by Jay Forrester, the person who created system dynamics. I'm like, what's this? And I pull it off the shelf and start thumbing through it. And there's a paper by, by Forrester in the book. It was a collection of papers. And I start reading it. And before I know it, it's an hour and a half later, I've been standing in this aisle and I was absolutely fascinated by it. But it seemed to mesh with... So, some stuff we were being taught in a class on economic methodology. So uh, uh, in my second year of graduate studies, we had a mandatory class 
and I was a good student. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it was mandatory. So I was there front seat, first row and all that stuff. And, and it was on um, economic methodology. How do economists explain things? How do scientists explain things in general? Philosophy of science and what have you. And I was shocked to find out as a graduate student that there were different schools of thought in economics, that not all economists explain things the same way. As an undergrad, you know, you're just taught, you just take the classes and you mm-hmm. spin it back. And you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the field, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I, uh, the uh, heterodox schools of economics we were being taught use sort of an inductive approach to, uh, to doing economics. And the orthodoxy used a deductive approach. It was kind of like Descartes versus Hume. Okay. I'm just yeah. oversimplifying. Yeah, let's, let's back anyway. up a little. Let's back up a little bit on that because it's the, you know, kind of the old school would uh, would be looking at data, they'd be looking at trend lines and they'd use their intuition to determine what the driving factors are and what they should be paying attention to. And, uh, you know, the other side was uh, beginning to look at, uh, you know, data and analysis from, an, from a different point of view. Is that a, is that a quick summary of the, uh, the heterodox and... Yeah, well... Certainly, there's aspects of that, absolutely. But uh, the, the 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 difference, and again, I'm not a philosopher, so this is my recollection of the class mm-hmm. some some decades ago. Is the the deductive orthodox approach starts with the mind, starts with theory, and then and usually it's logical theory presented mathematically, mm-hmm. and then you derive a testable hypothesis. Then you look at the real world, you collect data and measurements, and see if you confirm the theory or not. The heterodox economists started like Hume did with the real world, and they tried to identify patterns and generalities and then build their way up to theory. So it was real world first, theory second, mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. theory first, real yeah. world second. So so where does system dynamics uh, fit into that controversy? So, so the heterodox economists back then, we were taught, um, uh, did use the inductive approach and it wasn't mathematical. They didn't start with a, a mathematical edifice and derive testable hypotheses. They did basically case studies. Think about the a Harvard case study, a very rich, detailed, written description of, of a particular situation, right? Um, <clears throat> but it wasn't mathematical. I'm reading this volume of, of, of uh, system dynamics, and it's it, it was basically a computerized case study for us, sort of saying. And I'm like, Wow, like you could take the case study that the heterodox people were doing and you can make it mathematical. Moreover, uh, uh, the heterodox economists we were taught found generality uh, found generalities uh, from their uh, investigations of the real world. They were like a detective at a crime scene, piecing together the clues into a system or a holistic mm-hmm. pattern. They found generalities called real typologies and then if there were any regularities there, those were fundamental principles of economics, the most important of which was circular and cumulative causation. I'm reading Forrester. It's a systems approach. You connect the pieces together. Generalities are called generic structures. And some of the fundamental principles of system dynamics are stocks and flows and feedback loops, circular and cumulative causation. So as a student, I went to the professor going, ah, I think I found something important. And I thought I was going to get an attaboy, Mike, because, you know, doctoral students are looking for dissertation topics and whatever. And he was kind of the professor was kind of horrified, like, 
you're trying to mathematize my stuff. I was mm-hmm. like, whoa, I'm just, I'm just a student. I'm just telling you. And he said, well, write it up in a paper. You got to write me a paper for the course anyway. And I did. And he gave me an A and he actually helped me get it into uh, publication. He thought it was, you know, that I had something there. So yeah, that, that, well, was, that was the start of it. Yeah. And is that, is that argument still going on in the economics profession? I suppose so. Um, the the heterodox economists are always fighting against the orthodoxy, and the orthodox economists don't. They just think they're little ants at a picnic. They don't. They don't care. They don't sort of swat them away it's beneath their <laughs> beneath them yeah. to uh, uh, allocate time to discussing methodology or anything like that. That's yeah. my impression. Yeah, you, you hear about it today and you read, you know, general, and it's all about the data and the analysis of the data and and the dynamic fluctuations in the system. And, um, I, you know, so it's it seems to be, a, a at least mathematically, more more uh, defined uh, study than it than it was, you know, so many years ago. I do think, yeah, I, I do think the um, financial crisis and recession, the Great Recession of, you know, 2008, 2009, and I think that gave a boost to alternative ways of doing economics that, yeah. uh, you know, because yeah. the orthodoxy couldn't really handle or explain or predict what, what was going to happen. So I yeah, think it that seems has like given a boost. Yeah, there's a, there's a new crisis and there's something new. And so all the old stuff sort of has to be rewritten in a new way, but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily seem like uh, we can avoid those crashes and falls and pitfalls and all the things that happen in the economy. So it's it's something that's very difficult to control. And we learn new lessons, but we don't necessarily learn this, the, the ability to really capture those patterns in a way. Um, and that's what system dynamics is trying to do, right? I mean, so talk a little bit about this issue of, you know, stocks and flows and feedback loops. And, um, you know, because that's, that's, as I understand it, kind of the guts of it. Sure. Yeah, so... Uh... First of all, we don't build models of systems with system dynamics. We build models of problems from a systems perspective. So we try and leave things out and not try and make a digital twin of the of the real world. So we confront problems. And the when we say a problem, what we mean is there's a, a behavior over time that's that's uh, problematic. Uh, so something's oscillating and we'd like it stable. Something's growing and we'd like it shrinking or whatever the case may be. And in order, so we believe too that in system dynamics that uh, structure causes behavior. So the problematic behavior is being caused by the design of the system. It might not be consciously designed, uh, might have evolved to its present state. I always suggest that the U.S. tax code would not be written from scratch the way it is today. Nobody would do it. Nobody would do it that way. Right, you'd be crazy to do it, but but nevertheless, it is what it is. So there's a structure, and it's causing the problematic behavior. So we try and um, map out that structure with stocks and flows and feedback loops. Think of those as sort of the Lego pieces that we put together, configure in a manner that would allow the model to mimic the problematic behavior. And of course, now we have an explanation, not the explanation, but an explanation, for mm-hmm. why the, the problematic behavior is occurring. And then we can use the model to try and redesign the structure of the system, redesign the airplane, if you will, so it can fly better. Mm-hmm. So it, it, 
it isn't about making a model and predicting the future. It's about identifying a problem and then systematically trying to identify why that problem is arising from maybe it's from certain sets of incentives or structure, I guess you say is important. So structure is resulting in these factors. I, I always feel that way when I'm, you know, when I'm in a call center, you know, calling in a call center and I get somebody and, and they, and they cannot do the simple thing that I'm asking them to do. It's, you know, and I, you feel bad for them because they've got a system that doesn't work. Right. It's, it can't, yeah, right. they're, can't a victim of the system. they're a victim of the system. And so they, but they're, they're the ones on the front line that get all the grief from people. Yeah. So, exactly so looking at problems, trying to solve problems, but not, you know, not a, a, a forecasting tool or looking at the, looking at the future, uh, you know, in a more, you know, uh, you know, the sense that we all want to know the future, right? But it, but that's not what system dynamics was originally designed for. It's just well, about problem solving. Yes. Uh, sometimes the models are run into the future. So, um, you know, I guess we get into a, a discussion of what do we mean by forecasting and what have you. Hmm. Certainly, if you're trying to, uh, I don't know, uh, predict the price of Bitcoin, you know, next year, next month or something, or Tesla stock or something like that. Um, that's really, I mean, you can do it with a system dynamics model, nobody's stopping you, but it's really not designed for that purpose. And there's other mm -hmm. tools like neural nets and stuff like that, that can probably do a better mm -hmm. job if you're trying to hit a number, uh, or, or a range of a number out into the future. Yeah. Or, and it, it's, it's within, you like to keep the problems within a certain range, you know, not extrapolate out beyond the, you know, the, uh, the area that you're investigating. I mean, that's one of the problems when okay. people talk about exponential growth and they, you know, it's going to continue forever. Well, you know, it really can't continue forever. Um, so it's it's a matter of the, t the time frame and the scope that you're looking at to keep it, uh, keep it more usable and more accurate. Yeah, uh, so that's absolutely right. So we, you know, we uh, specify the problem at the beginning of a modeling um, intervention, if you want to call it that, or modeling project. In, first of all, in words, you can say it or write it, but then we make a picture out of it, which, which is what we call a reference mode. And that's uh, the time shapes of the important variables that define whatever the, the, the issue is. And the, you know, over what time frame? Uh, years, weeks, minutes, decades, what have you, right? And there's, there's these time shapes, and that's what the model, uh, its reference mode wants to mimic, is that problematic time shape or or set of time shapes. Mm -hmm. So that could be from now going forward, if that's seen as a problem, something that's gonna you know, grow and it shouldn't be growing or shrink and it shouldn't be shrinking or, or what have you. So, so in that sense, you know, is it a forecast? Um, well, it's really a problem definition, I guess you yeah. might say, rather yeah. than we think population in the year 3007 will be this number or this number plus or minus yeah. Yeah. something like that. So that reminds me that, you know, one of the things that Jay Forrester was famous for was um, the work that came out in the 1960s about, you know, climate change and population dynamics. And you know, the Club of Rome was, uh, you know, was, you know, kind of the, the top of the top in terms of the great minds. And then there was, I remember Paul Ehrlich's work in the population bomb and, and, uh, now we are, what, how many decades later, and people look back at, at many of the things that were being said back then about population and about, you know, 
uh, climate change and basically saying, well, those things were, they were all wrong because none of those things materialized um, in the way that were, were being projected at the time. So uh, that's kind of cast a pall over some of that work that was done at the time. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of, was that kind of taking the technique out beyond the appropriate parameters or, or was it, uh, you know, there are too many feedback loops so you can't necessarily figure things out? So in system dynamics really has a very modest claim. Basically, we take our own mental model, if you will, our own understanding of something and make it formal in, in, with, the, with the stocks and flows and feedback loops with equations on, on the computer and let the computer do what the human mind is very bad at. And that is mm -hmm. tracing through or simulating the dynamics of a very complex system that we observe or conceive of with our, our mind. Jay always taught us that inside of our heads, we don't have a real world system or city or corporation or school or what have you. We have mental representations of those systems we have models in our head and we use them every day. Yeah. And our mental models are, are good, particularly if you're in charge and I'm not, you probably have a pretty good mental model. You've been doing whatever you're doing for a long time and you know a lot, but humans are, are so they got good mental models, but they're, we're bad at mental simulation, you know, simulate accurately, think through accurately, mentally simulate forward. Now change one thing mentally and mentally re-simulate accurately and compare. Humans can't do that, but but a computer can. Or you might have uh, a clients, a single client or a group uh, of uh, clients that would like to, you to build them a model so they can help them with their thinking. And this was the Club of Rome, right? So the Club of Rome went to, to Forrester and said, well, you know, could, could you model what they call the world problematique or the predicament of mankind? And Forrester said, well, what is that? And they explained it. And so he said, yeah, so his model represents his client or the Club of Rome's perspective on the, the interaction of some forces like population pollution and what have you and the likely implications. And so Jay, Jay always said this. I'm not saying it's truth. I'm saying this is what they told me and I represented it. And isn't it interesting? And it can generate an interesting conversation. It's not a yeah. prediction that at this time, things collapse or whatever, but rather you've got exponential growth in a finite world. You're, the, the people are demanding goods and services. So they're chewing up resources and to make things and generating pollution by making things. And that could be a big problem going forward. So it so, was helpful. A rather modest yeah. Claim. yeah, no, that's right. And it was helpful in terms of identifying a potential problem, but then you know, uh, books and media and, you know, it went crazy with turning this into predictive forecasts that mm -hmm. uh, that were really just uh, what ifs, you know, what if we, uh, you know, these this modeling of this system goes in this direction, well, then we're going to have a problem. So we ought to pay attention to it. So that that means that the, the character of the work that was being done underneath those studies um, was sound and limited and qualified, but it became something else when it hit the public and it hit the headlines. And, um, you know, and then that's where some of the, a lot of those headlines were just plain, you know, wrong because there, and, and again, there's a lot of dynamic forces at play in these complex systems. So um, 
it if you keep it if you keep the techniques limited to what they're supposed to do identifying problems helping to identify possible solutions it's a great tool it's a great technique even you know even today yeah yeah i would say uh with with our modeling we get a win on the scoreboard if a model becomes a routine part of a conversation so most C-suite executives, decision makers in positions of authority are not going to say, well, I don't know what to do. Let's press the go button on the model. Oh, it told me to do whatever. Okay. They're not going to do that, of course. But it's it's a win on the scoreboard, I think, if there's a conversation going on in the boardroom or around the conference table. And among the, the things that are routinely discussed, somebody says, why don't we run it on the model? Let's see what the model says and why. And that becomes a normal part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that's realistically what we can hope for with our modeling, that we've we've become a part of the conversation. Right, right. So um, how does, you know, one of the, one of the uh, issues that people talk about in terms of system dynamics uh, now and complexity system, complex systems is the, the question of disequilibrium where, oh yeah, it looks fine, system stays in a, homeostasis and we're all fine, but you know, then it gets pushed too far and all of a sudden you're outside of that uh, zone of equilibrium and you're in disequilibrium or tipping points or, you know, or collapse. Um, you know, how does that, um, how does system dynamics kind of address those kinds of questions? Right, right. So, uh, well, being trained as an economist, I'm quite familiar with equilibrium. <laughs> My brothers and sisters in economics love equilibrium models. Um, so first of all, let's say equilibrium is a useful concept. It's a nice reference point, but it's quite uninteresting. In a dynamic system, equilibrium, if you, if you uh, graph all the variables in your model, everything's a horizontal line because there's no pressure for change. So things are unchanging. And of course, if you think of real data on any real living system, you don't have all horizontal lines, right? The data is doing all sorts of things, everything but a horizontal line. So it's clearly not a, a, a real life situation, if you will, but it's a useful reference point. So for example, we'll build a system dynamics model, put it in, e in equilibrium, either partially while we're testing it, or even when it's done, and then knock it out of equilibrium with, I don't know, a tax cut. Well, anything that's not a horizontal line after the simulated tax cut has to be the response of the system as it pr processes that shock, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's useful to know. If it's doing something else and then you shock it, well, it's hard to disentangle, you know, the, re the response of the system to what it would have done anyway. So it's a useful concept. But yeah. all the interesting stuff happens out of equilibrium. That's where real life behavior uh, occurs. And so in system that we say, yeah, we can use equilibrium. It's useful for understanding a model as we're building it and what have you. But when we really do analysis, we want to look at the disequilibrium yeah, yeah. of behavior. And it can get quite complicated and quite interesting. Yeah. I, I, one one uh, example comes to mind where, you know, the, uh, the controversy about program trading, you know, AI-driven or program-driven trading that yeah. is works in microseconds, and it's responding yeah. to a set of signals from the market. So, the, potentially, and this has happened, I gather. You know, the market will begin to drop, and then program trading will will compound that effect and multiply that effect. And now you've got this massive 
feedback in the system that's you know really hard to, it's hard to model that and hard to know until it happens you see how big that feedback is and then you know you get a market crash because because these uh you know these these trading you know the automated trading was put in place and you know and it drives a drives a result that nobody wanted and you know it just it just allows uh, allows traders to get in and out of the market you know even faster than you can blink your eye so can 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 become a problem when the system is you know you think the system is a certain way but it proves to be somewhere else yeah so george i, I don't know if you so, can hear me uh, break it yeah. up a little bit there <laughs> okay yeah same same for me but don't worry about that um, uh, because, um, my computer is taking my picture, which is great. By the way, well, I'll edit this out. My picture's got, you know, looks great on my end. You look fuzzy, but you look great on your end and I look fuzzy. Sometimes I freeze up, but the, the, the program takes care of all that. So, um, okay. just as long as you can, as long as you can kind of hear me and I can hear you, we just keep going. And, sure. uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, um, so one of the issues that, that comes in, I think for system dynamics is the question when, you know, you set up a, you set up a model and it's got feedback loops, mm -hmm. but those feedback loops aren't necessarily stable, right? Well, uh, I guess it kind of depends on what you mean by stable. The loops are the loops, right? You, you, you set the model up the way you set it up, but if the model is, oh, well, put it this way, if the model is linear, the way you set it up is the way you set it up. If, if you make the positive loops stronger, a, a control engineer would say the gain is bigger and it's linear throughout the simulation, those positive loops will be stronger. But if the model is nonlinear, you can get into quote unquote shifting feedback loop dominance. Whereas the, the stocks, the bathtubs, the state of the system, as those stocks fill and drain, think of them as bathtubs, as, and they're filling and draining with whatever the concept they're representing, money, people, what have you. Uh, that filling and draining can cause a shift in feedback loop dominance that can be rather abrupt. So a positive loop can be driving the system and suddenly, suddenly a negative loop is or vice versa, this sort of thing. And it makes it all the more difficult to diagnose, you know, uh, what's happening. Think about trying to mentally simulate that. Forget about it. But it's also quite interesting because that's where you get all sorts of real life um, uh, abrupt transitions where suddenly something happens, a riot breaks out or, or something like that. There's a crowd, they're jostling, suddenly there's a riot. You know, That sort of phase transition happens at an inflection point or a shift in, in feedback loop dominance from a system yeah. dynamics point. So is that something that you'd want to look for in your, in your models, but you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily the, you know, um, the purpose of what you're doing is not necessarily to search for those things. Well, it's, it's part of the game because, uh, you know, you're trying to produce an explanation for why the problem is occurring. When, when the, when the model mimics the base run, the problem statement, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's offering an explanation for why the problem is occurring. And then you try and redesign the airplane, as I said earlier, but if you don't understand why it's mimicking it, right? Like in, okay, great. You got this model. It's all fancy and you got equations and whatever in plain English, tell me what happened here. And you're like, Oh, I really, because of the shifting loop dominance, 
that's that's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can't because ultimately, you know, Forrester was an engineer. He wasn't interested in the theory of bridge building. He's actually an electrical engineer, but theory of bridge building. He wanted to build a bridge and get cars across the the river. <laughs> and you know, the, the the model is just a vehicle for for doing that. But it's let's make the real system better. That's what he was concerned about. So you know, it's not look at this elegant mathematical thing I built. I'm going to frame it and put it on my wall. It's is it telling you something? And what in plain English is it telling you that I can use now to fix the real system? So if there's been shifting feedback loop dominance and you don't know why the model is telling you to do something, nobody's going to follow your recommendations. Can't explain why it's doing that. So that's been a particularly difficult mathematical thing to work on. Like, well, okay, how do you do that then? And only in recent years have we started to see software solutions that enable us to begin to say something concrete about shifting feedback loop dominance. So it's been quite a, a wonderful advancement in the last mm-hmm. five years or something in, in, in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that sounds fascinating. And it's, I, I'm, another question that occurs to me is uh, some, there are some areas of complexity science and um, dynamic systems that look at um, kind of the system, there's a system within a system sort of nested, you know, like, for example, human beings are complex dynamic systems that theoretically are rational. And then you get 8 million of them together making decisions in a, in a marketplace and you have then a, an economy or, you know, that is a different system. And, and that economy has a bunch of different pieces. So, uh, is there, is there any way for system dynamics to look at the relationship between parts parts and whole like um for example i I think in economics people use game theory to try and figure out what human beings will do under certain circumstances and that potentially uh leads to an understanding what some of those feedback loops are going to be like what some of those behaviors that are going to drive some things i mean that's now it's starting to get pretty pretty loopy with all the complexity but i just want to see what uh what kinds of things you you think are important to look at. Right. Well, cer- certainly you can build a sort of hierarchical structures uh, in system dynamics, having super s- sectors and sectors and subsectors and things like that. Kind of, if you can describe it, you can model it, if you will. Um, but system dynamics is a more aggregate technique. We start with a reference mode, the overall system behavior is doing this problematic thing over this time frame, and we want to make it not do that, or at least mitigate what it's doing, right? So so we're not looking at sort of the individual agent level of analysis. Um, there, there are tools for that and they're they're also useful, but that's not exactly what we're trying to do with, with system dynamics. We're looking at more of the aggregate system design level behavior rather than Johnny or Sally. And then the other, the other systems uh, in the hierarchy become, you know, sort of inputs inputs or outputs for the system of study. Yeah, so, right. So there's all sorts of things you can do. There, there's one of the um, emerging things in our field is um, a multi-method simulation modeling where you can combine agent-based modeling, system dynamics modeling, discrete event modeling, all in one model. And the different areas of the model, uh, you use the appropriate technique and the software is constructed so it all talks to one another uh, in the appropriate way. 
Now, you know, the best practice for doing that is a little murky, I think, right now. That's my read on the on the field. Mm-hmm. It's a little new, but people mm-hmm. are beginning to try and figure out how to do that. Ultimately, you want a teachable, repeatable way of doing that, right? So you mm-hmm. get a good good model at the end that tells you something useful. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think about, uh, you know, there's controversy as well about the, the use of big data systems, you know, uh, and machine learning to... Uh, sort through, you know, reams and reams of data, you know, rooms full of server farms of data to extract uh, meaningful trends or information. You know, how does that, how does that flow into the work that, that uh, system dynamics does? Yeah. Well, again, that's probably a a research area. Uh, You know, how does uh, AI relate to all of this. I know AI can now uh, generate uh, Python code and Java code and stuff like that. Could it uh, generate system dynamics code? I, I suppose so. I haven't seen that one yet, but I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if if that's possible. You know, I think the, the answer in, you know, today uh, is, um, you know, basically I mentioned mental models, your mental model, your client's single client or a a conference room table full of experts, domain experts, sort of a shared mental model. And you're trying to take what they know and make a dynamic model out of it. And if, if there's written information, we can incorporate that. If there's, um, if there's a a numerical information, we can incorporate that. It's, it's all good. But the main thing was the, historically anyway, was the mental information. You know, if, if uh, big data and AI mining that data or mining text can be used to extract other useful information that could then feed into uh, building a better, uh, higher quality system dynamics model. I think that would be a uh, be a great thing. I suppose mm-hmm. that's possible. I don't know that anybody's done it yet, but I can't imagine that's that's too far down the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it will be interesting to see how soon uh, how soon that goes on. I think one of the distinctions, perhaps, between what you do in system dynamics and what some of the um, AI and training systems do with uh, with machine learning and big data is um, you're searching for understanding, right? You're looking at a system and you are applying your human brain with some tools and techniques that will help you try and understand the, the system and why it's doing what it's doing. So there's a level of understanding that is required that from from what I've read, is a very difficult thing to assess when you've got um, you know machine learning algorithms that are culling through massive amounts of data and coming up with a conclusion, and you know and and you don't know why, and they don't know why. Yeah. So it's like, well, how did we get that conclusion? We don't know. It's just yeah. the data. So yeah. If you um, ever looked at a, a neural net and say, show me what's inside, it's predicting something really well. You look at it and you're like, I don't. I can't, I don't understand what it's doing. It's right. And I suspect it's a little like human beings. You know, if, if you ask a human being, well, why did you make that decision? Well, then there's a lot of, well, because, you know, unless it's, there's some, been some numerical analysis, which there never is. It's a set of intuitions. It's a set of models, a set of maps, a set of things that you understand about that. It's very complex for a human to answer that question. And if you turn around where you know, a machine comes up with a conclusion based upon this massive quantity of data and you ask the machine, why did you make that decision? No, they won't be able to answer any better than humans will. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I will mention uh, Jay Forrester wrote a very famous, well, paper, but it was uh, initially just a memo to the system dynamics group at MIT some years ago. And it was, it's been reprinted as a paper in our professional journal. Uh, but he became alarmed at people focusing on the model and the beauty, the elegance, and, and what have you of the model. And he wrote this memo saying it's the modeling process not the model that generates the value. In other words, it's the process of struggling to figure out with these stocks and flows and feedback loops, how to configure that Lego set to understand or make it mimic the problem and understand, have an explanation for the problem and then figure out what to do about it. Uh, rather than you're building this beautiful, elegant mathematical edifice that you can admire or something. And he felt mm -hmm. that the field was, sort of slipping away towards that. And I think he probably, he, he, he said some things to me anyway, uh, every once in a while about artificial intelligence and how, uh, you know, do you really want like to press a go button and an, an AI machine just builds your model for you? He says that gets away mm -hmm. from you understanding, uh, you know, the system. And it's, it, it's not that the, the AI bot builds it and gives it to you and now you understand, but rather it's this struggle to figure out what's going on that generates the insights and, and the value. Yeah, it's an interesting point because it's um, part of the process for humans is, uh, yeah, we have a mental model, right? A mental model on a map, like your system dynamic model. And then data comes in and there's a, there's a disconnect. Something's wrong. My model, my model is not applicable because something is saying something's out of whack. Well, then you got to, you go to address that, and sometimes you change change the model, like you do in system dynamics. You get some information feedback. So, oh, wait, wait, we got to fix that. So you fix the model, and you can do then have a better uh, interpretation of what the real world is doing, and you've adjusted your model inside. And I think that's um, you know there's a field the field of active inference is uh, looking at those kinds of models where you know we have our mental model, and then there's the real world out there. It's not always consistent, and so. There's yeah, a yeah. process of engaging with the world and the world gives us feedback and then we adjust our models through this active inference process. And it sounds like Jay recognizes that it's not the, it's not the model, it's the modeling process where you can use it to gain understanding, but in and of itself, it's not, it's not valuable. It's not, it's not like this black box that will give you the perfect answer and you don't have to worry about it. You really have to struggle with the problem. Yeah, I like that. That's good. That's good. Good way of thinking. Um, well, let's change gears a little bit. Um, so I know you're you're an engineer. My experience, or, or you know, have have trained. I'm an economist. I'm economist. not an engineer. That's right. I'm sorry. I work economist. with a lot of engineers. <laughs> right. You work with engineers, and you work with system dynamics, which is a you know a modeling process. And so uh, it, it's a sense that you know everything has its place, and you know you you structured and ordered and all that stuff, but you know, the world's a mess, right? The real world's a mess. Systems yeah. are systems are mess, you know, bridges collapse, you know, lots of things in the world are, are pretty messy. And um, so, uh, you know, how do you make sense of that? Well, that the world is a mess or complicated? Yeah, yeah or... it's complicated. <laughs> I mean, you, you have your area of study where you try to provide a little bit of order and structure 
to the process by by what you do professionally. But um, you know, well, the broader world is still yeah. Well, I, I don't I don't think people think in terms of systems. I don't think they think in terms of feedback loops. I don't think they think like uh, a system dynamicist is trained to think holistically about. Mm. Um, you know, there's cause and effect, but it can come back and, and influence the cause, but probably not immediately, only after a significant delay. So it's hard to attach cause to effect to get the two right. And then, wow, there's a feedback loop there that you might not be seeing coming at you. It depends on the time scale. Mm. You know, with climate change, for example, the time scale is so long relative to you in, in my lifetime. You know, it's kind of like you barely notice weather changing or whatever on any mm-hmm. given week or month or mm-hmm. whatever. So I think we just don't think that way. We're not trained to think that way. Certainly not in the United States educational system, right? So, and so perhaps yeah. that's part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm reminded of, uh, for example, the use of exponential uh, trends. Um, and, you know, the famous one is Moore's Law, which says oh, yes. that, oh, you know, computers are advancing at this, you know, very, very rapid exponential rate. And, you know, the size of things getting smaller and the cost is going down. And, you know, and uh, Moore was correct for many decades. But people then use that exponential model as a prediction of the future. And so, uh, uh, what was his name? Came out with the book, The Singularity, right? Like everything, uh, the information flow is getting faster and faster, and eventually it'll hit a singularity. Well, that's just, singularities don't, you know, you know, uh, don't happen in in human, you know, conditions or human models. You know, exponential trends have to respond to constraints in the environment, and so you, you know, you end up if you if you take a model or if you take a picture and you take it out of a reasonable zone, it becomes really uh, nonsense to talk about that. Yeah, so that's a great example of a, of shifting feedback loop dominance. So we'd have a positive feedback loop, a self-reinforcing process generating the exponential growth, right? But then you hit an inflection point. That's the point of shifting feedback loop dominance. And now negative feedback loops take over and you in, still increase, but at a decreasing rate, increasing at an increasing rate, increasing at a decreasing rate. And then you hit the limitations of, the technology. I mean, you can only make the thing mm-hmm. so small, and then that you start the wires start generating capacitance or whatever it is. And again, I'm not an engineer, but you know, yeah. or, or heat 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 uh, sinks don't work anymore, and you need a different technology or a different yeah. paradigm, you know, to you know, to get the paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, I want to go back and ask you: Did you grow up in a religious tradition? Uh, yes. Um, my educational background, to give you an idea, is St. Cornelius, St. Norbert, and Notre Dame. Okay. There <laughs> That's you a go. hint. <laughs> so, so how do you feel, uh, have, have your, uh, have your feeling, religious feelings uh, shifted over time on the basis of the, the work that you do in system dynamics and complex systems and how it all fits together? I don't know if I would say it's from system dynamics, but if you recall earlier in our conversation, I mentioned the professor who taught that methodology course. Uh, he was the guy who, at Notre Dame, uh, <laughs> of all places, that got me to start questioning some of the religious beliefs I had been raised on. He came into class on the very first day. We were sitting around a conference table, was in the big library, and 
and uh, we're ch 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 chatting with the other students and he comes in. I, I had seen him around. I didn't really know him. And he was carrying a giant pile of books and papers and things. First day of class. So he's one of these guys who said, you're going to read five books. You're going to read this one. Then you're going to read this. So he carried them all. And he goes to the front and there was a table and a little lectern thing on the table. And we're that, 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 that. And he takes the big pile of books and just goes plump and it goes bang and hits the table real loud. Everybody stops and looks up and he grabs the lectern and he leans out over it and he goes, how do you know if an explanation for something is true? First words out of his mouth. Yeah. You know, I mean, are we starting class already? Usually you give yeah. out a syllabus or something, you know, yeah, but I thought, wait, wait a minute. It's a darn good question. How yeah. do you know yeah. that an explanation for something is true? And then we got into the whole philosophy of science. How do scientists explain? How do economists explain? Start me thinking about, well, you know, the religious stuff is like, you know, how do you know that yeah. that explanation is is true? Yeah. So I guess I would say my current belief is sort of like, well, um, I don't know about the whole story, mm -hmm. the big picture story, mm -hmm. but on balance, there are exceptions. Don't get me wrong. Churches in general do good stuff. So whether or not the story is true, <laughs> if you go to church and do good things and help others, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, in terms of the questions of complex systems and mathematics and science, do you, do you feel that... Um, uh, there is a point at which you know we might be able to understand it all, or is there is there going to be uh, open ended questions that are just never going to be resolved? We'll just keep working on them. Oh wow, that's a that's a almost a Stephen Hawking thing or, or something. That's right. Yeah, uh, it's it's a big question. I I really don't know. I, I, the only thing that leaps to mind is um, we did have a, a fellow. He's has since passed away, but every year at the annual system dynamics conference, he would build models, system dynamics models of mystic experiences. No, mm -hmm. no lie. But they were very rigorous models. And he was, he would read, you know, Buddhist philosophy and what have you. And from that, he would try and model all of these concepts and say some interesting things. So, you know, whether our complexity tools ever get us there, I don't know. Um, but, you know, who knows? AI, what, who knows? But uh, I, I think people have wrestled with this sort of question for, for many, many decades or thousands of years, really. Yeah, and uh, I'm reminded of one of Stephen Hawking's famous uh, phrases in a book towards, towards the end of his life. Um, <clears throat> he said, there is no model independent reality. So it's kind of like, what you're saying, yeah, sure. you know, you've got yeah. a, you have a model, you can model it, but the model is not the real world. Right. So right. his final word on that was, well, yeah, you can model anything, but the model is not the real world. And so we have to remember that. I think it's a, I think it's a call for humility really to, mm -hmm. oh, you, you bet. Know, yeah. 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 That we just, the things that we don't, we don't know, we can't, can't know. Uh, so here's another uh, question for you. There's a big argument in, you know, in philosophy and the philosophy of science and, and uh, general about, you know, is the world a deterministic process? Uh, there's Laplace's uh, theorem that said that, well, if I knew the beginning states of everything in the universe 
uh, and I have the laws of physics, I'd be able to predict the future. Um, what's your sense of the yeah sort of question. a Newtonian uh, yeah, idea? Yeah. It's got a big machine, and it's just. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, if, if from a system dynamics point of view, if you think about um, chaotic systems, chaos, the butterfly effect and and that sort of thing, which is, a, again, a nonlinear phenomenon. And if you think that lots and lots of systems oscillate everything from the, the planetary rotations to the systems in the human body and what have you, business cycles and on and on, um, if they are chaotic, it can be deterministic, mm-hmm. but essentially stochastic, Right. Yeah, you know, unpredictable. The, the oscillations are un, yeah, unpredictable. Yeah. And then yeah. you get other uh, complex phenomenon like entrainment, where the uh, pendulum clocks in the clock shop, the, the clock shop owner comes in and starts them at the in the morning, and at the end of the day, they're all swinging together, or the yeah. fireflies come out, and at the end of the night, they're all synchronized, stuff like that. You know, there's there's all sorts of super complicated stuff that might even be deterministic, but it's essentially stochastic. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether it's stochastic, you know, but this idea of sort of uh, Newtonian mechanics, Newtonian dynamics versus Darwinian or evolutionary mm-hmm. dynamics, we have mutations and things. I'm I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about the Newtonian uh, yeah. approach. That there's just a big machine. And, you know, if you only knew the initial conditions, you run the mm-hmm. machine. And I mm-hmm. think it's more if you will Darwinian, if that's the way to put it. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I'm sure that you'd feel the same way about, you know, economies and markets and, oh. you know, those dynamics there, you know, they're, there's, they're chaotic processes at work inside the system and individual behaviors and the network, network effects. And yeah, you're, you're not, never going to be able gonna, uh, yeah, never going to be gonna able build to build a system dynamics yeah. model that predicts the discovery of the blockchain yeah. or something yeah. like that. You know, that's, yeah. you know, yeah. And are you, uh, that you're happy with that, right? The, a non-deterministic world, you're happy with that. Yeah, I mean, the the way it was described to me by by Forrester, like or, or a way to think about it is, he said, because we were talking about the economy and it's going up and down or whatever, and he said, well, look, if you're if you're doing some let's say corporate modeling, okay, with system dynamics, you can't do anything about the or think of the um, the, the firms in your industry as boats floating on the ocean and the ocean is the economy and it's doing this and it's plus it's doing all sorts of chaotic or unpredictable zipping and zapping. He said system dynamics would be used so you can redesign your boat so that as it's going up and down and being thrown about, it's bobbing on the surface and watertight while your competitors are listing and sinking and taking on water and Whatever you can't do anything about the pitching and rolling, but you can make your boat, you know, a, a, a better boat than everybody else's boat. You can design it better. Hmm. All right, so that's kind of a good, you know, you kind of can't deal, you know, you can't do anything about the world around you. It's chaotic, yeah. or whatever. You can take your family, your company, your city, whatever, and make it a good boat. Yeah. So that's an interesting uh, metaphor, really good metaphor. You know, the, the world may be this rocking, rolling ocean of change that, you know, we don't, we're never going to be able to predict. It's something we have to live with. But if we, in, uh, you know, if we, if we use the right tools to build the right boat, so, for example, as a human being, you know, you want to have the right uh, ways of dealing with other people. You want to, you know, you want to follow appropriate, you know, what to be, 
you know, virtuous, you want to be good, you want to do this, do these things so that your boat to the to the extent, I mean, you still got my, my things might come along and swamp, you know, swamp the boat, because you just don't know tidal waves, etc. But, but at least you're doing what you can to keep that boat um, level riding the current, and then you extend that to the systems, the systems or institutions, your family, the your workplace, you know, schools, you expand that, you do the same thing. And it becomes the same thing then with institutions, you know, companies, uh, you know, that want to ride the boat. So what are the, you know, how do you construct the timbers? What do you make it of? How do you, how do you make it resilient and responsive? And also yeah. Yeah. not too, you know, you don't want it too heavy. You don't want it ballasted too much. You've got to be able to ride the waves. That's a, that's a great metaphor. Yeah, and it's it's it's. I mentioned the the and Jay mentioned a concept of a company bobbing and and so forth. But it could be any you're right any institution, the banking system, the healthcare system, social security system, you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could redesign it. You know, look at the current design and say, can we redesign this thing so it's better? And this circles us back to this idea of forecasting and not. Jay would say, if you're a forecaster, what you're trying to do is forecast when the next wave is going to hit you and which direction it's coming from. How it's going to throw the boat, and then you're going to steer to avoid it or or whatever. He said, instead, you can't do that. Instead, design your boat so no matter what's hitting you from where, it's going to bob on the surface and deal with it as best as possible, at least better right. than your competitors or whatever. Right, right. And as there's cost benefit trade offs, you can't you know you can't do everything you want to do to to right. do that. So you have to make decisions and choices along the way. Yeah, no, that's a very strong metaphor. It's a great metaphor. Um, so uh, one last question. Um, uh, I ask all my guests this question, and it gets to the your your uh, maybe what that guy was doing with his mis, you know analyzing mis, mysticism. Um, do you have an an experience in your life that was important, transformational, but you know it just didn't make any sense. It just like something happened or occurred and you know was it you know some yeah what was it i don't know but it was you know it was important uh, as it's a great question and as a matter of fact i do i've got kind of a weird story so when i was uh applying for graduate school years ago i was accepted at uh several major universities and uh, i boiled it down to two uh, one was a Northwestern University, one was Notre Dame. And I mentioned I, I ended up going to Notre Dame. I liked Notre Dame's program better, but uh, I had met uh, a well-known economist from Northwestern and he had personally invited me. He said, look, apply to, to, to Northwestern. You can work with me, be my TA, we can do stuff. So I was like, I like the program better at ND, but I like the, you know, this well-known economist says he's going to take me under his wing, you know. So I was, I didn't, I was undecided. I was like paralyzed. I didn't know which, what I should do. And there was, I don't know if there still is, but back then there was a national kind of signing date. It was kind of like for college athletics as well. You have to declare where you're going because the, the stipends and fellowships have to be allocated. And if you, and, and everybody's applying to more than one school, cause you don't know where you're going to get in. And so then if you turn down the, the scholarship, it goes to the next person, all that stuff. And that date was approaching. And so, you know, I had to make a decision. Well, I had gone on a tour of Notre Dame and the faculty had taken me around and, and we, we had stopped for coffee in the campus center. And there was this big sort of ornate door, doorway. I go, what's in there? And they go, go look. So I go in there and it was a, a room devoted to 
somebody named Tom Dooley. And it contained all of his honorary doctoral hoods, his awards, his plaques and whatever. We go outside and there's a statue to this person named Tom Dooley as well. And I'm like, who is this guy? I never heard of this guy before in my life, but they're building statues to the guy. <laughs> they also had a statue of Moses. I get Moses, but Tom Dooley never heard of the guy. Well, it turns out he was an alum who uh, went to med school after he graduated and he went to the Navy. How he was stationed in um, Cambodia, Laos, that area of the world in the 1950s. He saw the plight of the people there. So when he got out as a, as a, uh, of the Navy, he went back and opened up clinics and attended to the, the, the people there. And uh, he, I guess he was apparently very shy and he would come back to accept all these awards, not because he wanted to, he didn't like to speak, but he'd force himself to do it so he could raise money for his clinics. Of course, they should make a movie out of this. He contracts, I think it was cancer, and he still goes back and he's ministering to his people while he's in terrible pain and stuff from cancer, and then he dies. They're like, oh, I see why they built a statue to this man. I mean, oh my goodness, like I'm, I never heard of this guy, but shame on me, right? So now the date, the signing date is coming up: Northwestern or Notre Dame? Notre Dame, Northwestern. I don't know. So I was home for spring break. My mom says, would you run to the store and get me some you know, bread and milk and stuff? A few items. I go, it's so nice that I'll walk. I'm not going to take the car. So I walk. I get the groceries. I got a bag of groceries. I randomly cross the street in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. 7th Street in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I jaywalk. It wasn't dangerous. But in other words, I didn't even walk at the crosswalk. I just crossed in the middle. And as I reach the other side of the street, I trip. I don't go down, but I stumble on something. And I have the bag of groceries here, so I, I my peripheral vision, I'm not seeing down. And I hadn't just yet hit the curb, so it wasn't the curb. I felt like in my mind's eye, I stumbled on a kind of a rock. And I looked down, I'm like, what the heck did I just kick there? And it was a book lying in the gutter about Tom Dooley, a man I had never heard about except for maybe two weeks before when I took the tour at Notre Dame. Yeah. Lying in the gutter. I said, I'm going to Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, said, yeah, to this day, I cannot is. say why in the heck that happened. If you said, make up some weird story about how you went to Notre Dame. And, yeah. no, and yeah. then, of course, I randomly saw the Forrester book in the library, plucked it off the shelf, and here I am. So, yeah, so random has, has, a, has played a role. I, I, I love that. And it kind of fits the metaphor of the boat, right? You're this boat, and now you're trying to make a decision, right? And from somewhere, a, a, a ripple or a wave or something comes along and gives you a push. Just, whoa, where did that come from? I know. And it takes you in some very, very interesting directions. Yeah. You bet. Mike, Mike <laughs> well done. Well done. That's a great story. I want to thank you for being on the, the podcast and a great conversation about system dynamics. And I really appreciate it because this is really one of the you know, one of the roots of what is now known broadly as complexity science and all the fancy stuff that's going on. But it started, you know, it started in some of these efforts by individuals to try and make better sense of systems in this case and a better a better way of doing things in the old-fashioned way. And uh, so it's great to, great to hear about that. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, well, you're welcome. And thank you so much for having me, George. This was wonderful. And, and I'm glad you're doing this. This, this, this was great. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. 
We're working on new episodes, so please subscribe to the series. In the meantime, explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Adventures, PlankSip, and Talk of Today, and join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.